So when after talking to Jeff and Russell, and I'm like, can I like go full Hong Kong on this? And they're like, yeah. She knew all of her soft spots. Oh boy. <laughs> Those are some tasty virginal noms. I'll go with it. <laughs> Will you join my pack now? Check yes or no. <laughs> just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by Will Wallace and Clissa Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season three, episode 10, The Overlooked. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find the time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH Podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. This episode is titled The Overlooked. It was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. During a massive storm, Melissa works to evacuate the hospital's patients, including Cora, with Peter at her side. Derek learns the truth about Jennifer, but can't hurt her without risking Cora's life as well as Delinsky's. Derek, Stiles, and Scott take Jennifer to the hospital and are forced to protect her from the Alpha Pack. Chris, Allison, and Isaac join the fray. Jennifer reveals the details of her connection to the Nemeton. When Melissa disappears, Deucalion offers Scott his aid, but it comes with a price. Our favorite quote from this episode comes from Stiles, which is, always a shocker for us because we never do him so um <laughs> this is the first one for this season actually but style says you got claws i got a bat and it's really fun it's an iconic weapon for styles it is our honorable mention comes from uh, an exchange between melissa and peter when melissa rushes in to see cora and she finds peter who she hasn't seen since season one and she says you're supposed to be dead and peter replies i get that a lot actually I'll bet you do. Do you guys think he actually cared and was there checking on her or he just came to eat her jello? I think you just showed up to creep on Melissa. Personal theory. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense that he's in there like tending to her. Our last honorable mention comes from a little bit of dialogue between Chris and Isaac. I don't even think I know which teacher this is. To which Isaac replies, she's the one with brown hair. She's kind of hot. And everyone slowly turns to look at him and he adds, it's just an observation. <laughs> I love Isaac. The episode begins as a storm rages above Beacon Hills Memorial Hospital. 8400 Balboa! That was where our offices were originally. Sadly, that building no longer exists. It's a Chipotle now, among other things. Really? 
Yeah, it got torn down. That's why we left. The owners of the property were going to tear it down and turn it into like a multi-use space with like a, a gym and a Chipotle and other stuff. Well, Isaac does love Mexican. Chipotle is the best Mexican food, especially in Los Angeles. He's joking, people. He's I am joking, yeah, people. That, that, do that not was, do that. That was sarcasm. If you're in Los Angeles, you get street tacos, real tacos, not Chipotle. Mm-hmm. Unless they decide to sponsor us, then we love Chipotle. <laughs> In the hospital, Melissa takes the lead on evacuation efforts. In the script, the wind blows open the entrance doors, but for shooting, they went with a more thrilling tree branch through a window. Always a winner. The doctor informs her that his patients are evacuated, except Cora Hale. Hey, that doctor is Brandon Boyce, an actor who's a friend of Jeff's. He's a really nice guy. This leads Melissa to the jarring discovery that Peter isn't dead. The real jarring discovery is how low cut Peter's shirt is. This is a hospital, sir. (laughs) Distract the doctors. (laughs) She's like, Peter, that shirt was not a V-neck when you got here. Where's my scalpel? Can I just say, of course, no one told Melissa that Peter was alive. That does seem like Scott's job. And, you know, they should just do like a Beacon Hills newsletter that they send out. And just like every month is like, here's who's alive and here's who's dead. Our previous suggestion was group text. They both watch in horror as Cora throws up black blood and another mysterious substance. Ugh, gross. Jennifer shows up at Derek's loft, trying to defend herself preemptively from Scott and Stiles' attack on her character. It's so manipulative to go in there and be like, you can only trust me. You can't trust anyone else, including these people that you've known longer. It's like the abuser's playbook. Poor Derek. Poor Derek. So the show should have been called. Poor Derek. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer kisses Derek, but when he doesn't kiss her back, she realizes that her defense isn't preemptive after all. My sex magic isn't working anymore. I can feel it. Which begs the question, why isn't the sex magic working anymore? Derek made him overcome it. (laughs) (laughs) But I really wanted to know what her argument was going to be. Like, if she got there before them, Scott and Styles come out into the open. Oh, Jennifer, you fucked up now. She's still trying it. Mm-hmm. Styles asks Jennifer where his father is. Styles is right on top of it. Big improvement from the Styles is missing storyline of season two. Oh, teary-eyed Styles. Oh, so sad. Kills me every time. Jennifer insists that she doesn't know and asks Derek if he believes this. I love how Derek looks back to Styles here. I mean, also Scott's there, I guess. Styles. <laughs> Derek looks to Styles. That is definitely sort of a a shipper theory is that talking to Styles and Styles like appealing directly to Derek is what broke the sex magic. Nice. Which is better explanation than either A, there was no sex magic after the actual sex. And that's just how Derek would behave in that situation, which I do not buy. Yeah. Or B, it broke because of reasons. Reasons. <laughs> So I like that better than either of those two options. Derek asks Jennifer if she knows where Stalinsky is. She continues to insist she doesn't, nor does she know about an attempt to kill Lydia. But Jennifer says that Scott and Stiles can't prove their allegations. Scott holds up a clear container with the powder inside. She asks what it is. Garlic powder. I mean, I mean, something special. It's a special powder. <laughs> I mean, like, it's so weird to go to, well, they can't prove it. This wouldn't hold up in court. (laughs) She comes in real strong. Like, I mean, for an innocent person, like I think an innocent person would just be like, what? 
Yeah. What are you talking about? Instead of <laughs> well, you can't fucking me, prove it, can you? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like you're gonna hear some stuff about me. It's totally not true. It cannot be proven. I'll be like, I bet it can. I bet if you're <laughs> like, coming yeah, up this especially long. <laughs> like you're saying how outlandish it is. Like instead of being like you can't prove it, it'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Who? What? Lydia Martin, like from one of my English classes, is she okay? Should I send her flowers? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. Deaton told Scott that the substance is both a poison and a cure, meaning Jennifer can use it, but it can also be used against her. He throws the powder in her face. The powder looks like it's supposed to come at us in 3D. Yeah. Maybe they should tell Derek to cover his face or something. He's standing right next to her. The powder, mistletoe, reveals her true face, the slashed up face of the draw. Derek grabs Jennifer by the throat, but she tells him that she's the only one who can save his sister. Derek calls Peter, who confirms that Cora was poisoned with mistletoe and is getting worse. So was Cora just an insurance policy? I guess. She was thinking several moves ahead to return to the chess verbiage. I guess so. Five-dimensional druid chess. (laughs) She adds that they'll never find Stolinsky without her help. Derek resists the urge to kill her, but just barely. Okay, they dragged this bit on too long we all know that Derek isn't going to kill her he's not stupid and anger is his anchor he's always angry he can control it this bit of him nearly killing her lasts a full 25 seconds that's precious runtime real estate on Teen Wolf yeah she gets cocky real quick after he drops her yes she does it's a great shot though Yeah, I love how there's thunder and so deliciously villainous. This show has so many great stunts, but I feel like Jennifer collapsing onto the floor while wearing like 13-inch heels was probably the most dangerous. They're wedges. It's fine. And I will say, Kate, about him controlling it, I don't think he was going to kill her. I think he was debating, like, can I maim her a little bit and get away with it? Love a good maim. Just a pinch of maiming. (laughs) In the car on the way to the hospital to check on Cora, Jennifer tries to get Derek to believe that she's helping him because she wants to and not because she has to. He tells her to shut up. She also wants him to listen to her explanation of how connected they really are. (laughs) Style should have just been there and leaned in between them from the back seats. Like, he said, shut up, lady. Ah, that would have been great. If only. In the script, Derek tells Jennifer to stop talking or I'll make you stop talking for the rest of your life. Like, I'm glad they cut that. that. No, I'll rip you throat out with my teeth. Nah. In the Jeep, Scott and Styles also head to the hospital. Styles expresses worry that Jennifer had this look that made it seem like everything was still going exactly the way she wanted it to. He asks if Scott saw that too. Scott just looks at him. He's like, I did not. I honestly did not. It's better just to be more reflective and quiet than openly say, I don't know what you're talking about. In the script, there was more dialogue at the top of the scene that must have been cut for time. Scott says, we're going to find your dad. Styles replies, how do we know he's not already? He swallows the last word, unable to finish. Scott says, he's not. We're going to find him. I like him like reassuring him, you know? Yeah. I feel like we need more of Scott being the emotional rock for Styles. The anchor, kind of. The anchor, yeah. I feel like we need more scenes of that. Absolutely. We could have subtracted from that 25 seconds of Derek (laughs) holding Jennifer by the throat. I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying, oh my God, it was horrible that they did that. I'm just like, that's kind of a long time in like screen time. Especially on a show that's as fast paced as Teen Wolf, right? Like 
those two lines would have taken less than half of that, you know? Melissa encounters Scott, Styles, Derek, and Jennifer as they arrive at the hospital. She asks why Styles has her bat. Yeah, why don't you get your own bat, Styles? Does he seem like someone who played baseball? Yeah. He seems like someone who really likes using that bat and who knows from the pilot that Melissa needs that bat for protection too. Oh, hey, she lives with her son who is a werewolf. Because that's really kept her safe previously. She's been threatened by just about every major villain on the show so far. Yeah. In the script at the beginning of the scene, the Jeep and Derek's cruiser pass an ambulance speeding away from the hospital as they arrive. It was either cut for time or maybe they didn't even film it. It sounds like one of those things that like would have cost a lot for getting very little. Also in the script, Melissa doesn't ask why Styles has her bat. She just asks why he has a bat at all. But making the bat hers could have been improvised on the day. I really like oh, that it is Melissa's bat. And uh, that just by saying my bat just gives so much backstory <laughs> that it was in the house. He went into the house. He got the bat and all this. So it's just like, it's just so much better than, how'd you get that bat? I went to Dick's Sporting Good. Well, that's not as interesting, is it? You know, so. <laughs> Melissa tells Scott that the building is supposed to be clear in 30 minutes. There are two ambulances coming back to the basement garage of the hospital, one in 10 minutes and one in 20 minutes. Cora needs to be on one of them. The group takes Jennifer on the elevator. Oh, I love this wide shot of all of them in the elevator. Yeah, it's so fun. And Styles' face. Oh. I wanted her to be like, I really hate teenagers. Like when Umbridge admits she hates children in Harry Potter, yes. you know? They get to Cora's room, but her bed is empty. They hear fighting sounds from the next room just before Peter comes flying out of it. Oh, oh is my is my V-neck ripped? <laughs> I love Derek's face looking down at him though. Scott and Derek joined the fight against the Mega Alpha. David Olsen with some great stunts. Always. With the others distracted, Jennifer slips away and gets back in the elevator. If Jennifer was all they wanted, why were they messing with Peter and Cora? To draw Derek out because they knew he was with Jennifer? How could they know that? They read the script. When Jennifer emerges from the elevator on a different floor, she encounters Deucalion and Kali. Deucalion takes the cap off of his cane to reveal the hidden blade and uses it as a spear. Well, that wasn't a very good throw. Nah, it was an intimidation tactic. Was it? No. Jennifer then gets back in the elevator. Kali tries to pry open the doors, but Jennifer uses her drock powers to send Kali flying. I love this bit. Sick. Styles tries hitting the Mega Alpha with his bat, but it just breaks the bat. I love how Derek comes back in for Styles. Oh, <laughs> it's sweet. It yeah. is great. And the bat breaking just makes me laugh. I love it. Now he owes Melissa a new bat. Hey, buddy, that bat was jagged. Stabby time. Get stabbing. I don't think that would do much. That's a Voltron Alpha, not a vampire. At school, Allison looks for Isaac. Hey, that's Tyler Schnabel in the background. I didn't catch that first. I was so distracted by how much I want her jacket. I was too. It's gorgeous. Love the shoulder detail. And in the light, you can see a bit of a brocade pattern. Love me some brocade. Yeah, I like the brocade too. Well, her mother was a fashion consultant or whatever. For like one episode. When she finds him, Allison explains to Isaac that Beacon Memorial is evacuating, which is why Lydia is being taken to a different hospital after her attempted murder. Isaac decides to go to the hospital to get Cora so she won't be alone with just Peter, despite Chris offering to drive both him and Allison home. Chris agrees to drive them to the hospital. 
That's sweet of Isaac to think about Cora being alone with just Peter. Already at the hospital, Melissa encounters Deucalion and Kali. Oh, I love seeing his eyes glow through the glasses when the lights go out. Styles discovers that Jennifer has escaped Derek and Scott's custody and raises his voice. Derek tells him to stay quiet so they won't be heard, which really sets Styles off. Styles can't believe that Derek would try to tell him what to do when Derek's psychotic, mass-murdering girlfriend, the second one he's dated, has got Styles' dad and plans to sacrifice him. <laughs> this part is so awful. It's a very tense situation. It's it's sad, but he, you know he's just lashing out. I know, I know, but we don't re-traumatize people, Styles. That's not okay. Yeah, poor Derek. He's everyone's like punching bag, and he always just takes it, both verbally and physically. Jennifer returns and tells them that she'll save Cora and tell them where Stolinsky is, but only after she's safely out of the alpha-infested hospital. Okay, there's a great meme using this shot where there's handheld camera work and it moves from Derek's angry face to Styles' angry face, and it's wonderful. It's one of the hold my flower memes. I remember that one. Peter suggests they torture Jennifer instead, which Derek doesn't have a problem with, until they're interrupted by Melissa speaking over the intercom. She relays that Deucalion wants them to bring Jennifer to ER reception within 10 minutes. If they do, he promises everyone else is free to go, and surely everyone believes that. Yes. <laughs> Jennifer says that Deucalion won't actually hurt Melissa. She tells Scott to explain why to the others. What have you been keeping from us now, Scott? It really is amazing how good Scott is at getting mad at Derek for not telling him things and also simultaneously not telling Derek anything he doesn't feel like telling him. Hypocrisy, thy name is Scott. <laughs> when Scott doesn't offer the information, Jennifer tells the others about how Scott is turning into a true alpha that Dekillian wants in his pack. Styles asks what a true alpha is. <laughs> He's like so done. <sighs> a true alpha, what even is that? Now we have enough shit. Which means Scott didn't tell Styles about this either. Are you shocked? No, I guess not. Peter explains, but Scott says that none of that matters right now. They need to get down to the basement to get in the ambulance, which means going through the Alpha Twins. Derek offers to help, but Jennifer says she isn't going anywhere without Derek. Peter says he'll help Scott, but he wants an advantage against the Alpha Twins. They search for something to help him out from among the medical supplies. Styles picks up defibrillators. Derek tells him to put them down. And he does. Oh, I love that. He listens to him. I, I love this whole bit. Derek being like, do you know how to use those? No? Then put them down before you hurt yourself. Scott discovers some epinephrine, which Derek says will make Peter stronger. Peter comes stumbling into the hallway with the syringe still sticking out of his chest. We really missed out on a Pulp Fiction scene there, and I am sad. Also, I hate that they said the epinephrine would make him stronger, but we didn't see him do anything that required more strength than usual. He should have run right into the big alpha and actually knocked him back. Yeah, or at least got, like, clawed by the big alpha, but not even react, just be like, ah! Like, yeah. so, you know, yeah. he's so, like, adrenaline up. Yeah, because honestly, you could take out the epinephrine bit and just, and like, digitally remove the syringe in his chest and you would never know that they did anything. They successfully load Cora up in the ambulance, but soon realize the driver has been killed. Kali comes looking for Jennifer. <gasps> My former gal pal. I like his styles. is just like, oh, I'm just going to shut these ambulance doors here. Seems like there's something private happening between you two. Don't mind me. 
Derek and Jennifer flee back into the hospital elevator just in time for Deucalion to cut the power from the roof. He lets Melissa go, telling her to find Scott and be careful. I want to just give her like a little pat on the head with his claw hand. <laughs> send her on her way. Condescending Aww. bastard. Where's that rooftop set, by the way? Curious. That's not a rooftop. It's actually just in the parking lot, right on the ground. By just showing nothing more than you actually have to, you can just you just assume it's many stories off the ground. The magic of television. Indeed. Yep. It's all lies. Next <laughs> none of them are even werewolves. <laughs> Don't give away our secret. Inside the ambulance, Styles realizes Cora isn't breathing. Ugh, she looks so clammy. I like that she's still wearing her leather jacket, though. Always and forever. Come on, Styles, slap her back to consciousness. You know that only works on her brother. And you know what? He might have even tried mouth to mouth on Derek if he didn't think Derek would slap him for doing it. Yeah, I think Derek would actually prefer to be hit. In the script, there was a bit of product placement added in one of the revisions to the scene. Styles was supposed to find a package of Twizzlers in the ambulance and eat some, but that was cut from the episode, which makes sense to me because that would have been odd as hell timing. Yes, yep. it would have. I was yep. as reading and watching at the same time and it got to this part and I was just like why are you doing this this makes no sense at all imagine like him driving distraught from Derek's loft to the hospital worried about his dad he just like breaks out a twizzler and like chewing on it he's like man these really helped me get over the fact that my dad might already be dead twizzlers for when the anxiety is almost too much to bear with some mouth to mouth Styles manages to get core breathing again he says that the next time he puts his lips to her mouth, she better be awake. Kate hates that line. I do not like it. But he's saying, you know, he doesn't want to kiss her while she's unconscious, so that's it, good. It wasn't a kiss. It was a life-saving maneuver. That's very true. Ew. In the script, Styles' final line was cut from the scene. He says, the next time I put my lips on your mouth, you better be awake and enjoying it. Ew. Crisis averted, he lets himself vent a little about how they normally have a plan B, about how she might have been right when she said all they do is show up and find the bodies, about how he doesn't want to find his father's body. He dryly says, Cora's easier to talk to when she's unconscious. I'm sure that's true of all the Hales. Yeah, definitely true of Derek. He is not easy to communicate with. I say that fondly. As Chris, Allison, and Isaac make their way through the deserted hospital, Chris cocks his gun. Oh, buddy, why isn't your gun already cocked? I hate that in movies and TV shows where people are already in a dangerous situation and then dramatically cock their weapon. Like, dude, well, thank God nobody jumped out at you already because you would have pulled the trigger and nothing would have happened. Also, I feel like Allison should have a weapon in this scene. I mean, granted, she's a teen, but come on. She's been trained for this. I think she was just coming from school, though. Oh, come on. I'm sure Argent's SUV has like 19 more guns in it. Mm. She doesn't use guns. Accurate, but she's also wearing tall boots that are perfect for hiding ring knives. And as we've previously established, Beacon Hills High School does not have metal detectors. That's true. It feels like she would be armed at pretty much any given time. Yeah, if I, I just, I don't, it's one of those things where I just don't buy her not having a, a knife just in her hand at all times, just coming out of her jacket, out of a boot, out of a little holster that you didn't know was there type mm -hmm. of thing. I just Exhausted from fighting the Alpha Twins, Scott helps Peter out to the ambulance with Styles and Cora. Then he tells Styles that he needs to go back for Derek, Jennifer, and Melissa. But Kali has the keys to the ambulance and the Alpha Twins aren't far. So Scott tells Styles to wait while he goes back in. Oh, I really like their ominous green emergency lighting here always did fun things with your lighting. I appreciate it. 
Russell knows how to light the shit out of a scene. Yes, he does. And you can tell it's not a filter. Doing it in post, it does not look as good as that. No way near as good. Instead of Derek and Jennifer, Scott finds the combined Alpha twins struggling to fight them off until Melissa shocks them with a defibrillator. Mama McCall! Yeah, Melissa, get some. Get away from my son, you son of a bitch. That would have been awesome. Really a missed opportunity, guys. In the elevator, Derek has his phone out waiting for word from the others. Jennifer asks him if he's heard anything yet. Uh, Stop talking to me. I'm trying to wordle. I feel like he'd be great at wordle for some reason. Definitely. (laughs) So because he's wordling, Derek stays silent. Jennifer says she knows what Derek is thinking, that she's using him, that everything between them was a lie that she's evil. That I'm a lesbian, but actually I swing both ways. She hopes he's not thinking the most superficial thought. Is that slashed up face revealed by the mistletoe her real face? I don't think he's thinking about that right now, asshole. Yeah, he's probably thinking about all the murder. And his sister possibly dying? Yeah, there's a lot more going on than what your face looks like, lady. She just wants to distract him. He's like, this haunted face holds no horror for me now. It's in your soul that the true distortion lies. Those are fancy words. Is that a quote? It's a line from a song. Oh. I think she's just trying to manipulate him. In her time being around him, Mm -hmm. I think she's picked up on a lot of his insecurities. And I feel like despite him being super handsome, I feel like the way he sees himself is almost the way she appears. Like, you know, he's broken and damaged. destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Like if there's one thing you could probably pick up about Derek quickly after meeting him, it's that he has a lot of guilt. And so I feel like what she's trying to do here is create guilt. Mm -hmm. Like, no, 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 you don't, you shouldn't feel like a victim. You should feel bad because you're just judging me based on my face. Yeah. Not my murder record. Right. Like, (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile, Khalid tells Deucalion that he shouldn't have let Melissa go. He insists it's an investment that he's trying to mature. He says the real soft spot they need to talk about is Kali's soft spot for Jennifer Blake. Or as she used to be known, Julia Bakari. She was Kali's emissary. Her gal pal. She knew all <laughs> of her soft spots. Oh, boy. <laughs> well done. Well done. In flashback, we see Julia's mutilated body. Kali might not have succeeded at killing her, but she got damn close. You know what the worst part would be? Knowing you got mangled by toenails. Yeah, humiliating. Insult to injury. Kali saw Julia as harmless, but she took her out to join the Alpha Pack, or, according to Deucalion, to be with Ennis. Why didn't Deucalion have to kill his emissary then? Because he's the leader. Leader of the pack. The Alpha of Alphas. But why would he need them to kill their emissaries anyway? The whole thing is they kill their betas to subsume their power, right? That wouldn't apply to emissaries. I think it's about not having anyone's loyalty split, but that doesn't apply to Dekelian because he's the leader. I guess that makes sense. It just annoys me that she doesn't bring that up. Like I hate in conversations in movies and TV shows when someone doesn't bring up the obvious counterpoint. In this case, why are you on me about killing my emissary? You never had to kill yours. And by the way, she's probably plotting some shit because you never did that. I have so many questions about like Holly doing it to join Ennis. Did Ennis like go seduce her and be like, be part of the alpha pack with me? Yeah, I don't care for that line. Like it just kind of comes out of nowhere that I even forgot about it until I was doing 
the, the script to screen stuff. And I was just like, what? <laughs> what? And then I remembered like when Ennis is dead that she like screams and tears her hair out and, and all this stuff. And I'm just like, it's a pretty big reaction. Well, so I, <laughs> a, what's happening here? And I, I feel like they were maybe trying to make that a thing, but then yeah. forgot and then added this line. I, yeah, I definitely thought like at that point they acted like they were like closer than the rest of them outside of the alpha twins that can form one alphatron. But um, <laughs> it, it's weird to me that like she killed her pack and killed her emissary, almost killed her emissary to be with Ennis. Like in the one flashback when we get them in the same building together, there didn't seem to be any romantic tension there. When yeah. you see them in visionary. It's a weird bit. Like, I really don't know why that's in there because at no point in the show, other than her freak out when he dies, is there anything between them? Like, and, and, and that's even, that could just be like, ah, my teammate died. You know what I mean? I, mean, I could see like, that, but it's just like, I don't know why you do yeah, this. Yeah, it doesn't have to be necessarily like a romantic thing. It could just be like, you had Deucalion as the leader. The twins are like, you know, twinning together all the time. And like, they're the two others. Yeah. So like they could have just really bonded as in that capacity. In that capacity yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, like that that line is very weird. Decalion asks if she really believed Julia was dead. Kali asks if he means where she turned back and heard Julia's heart still beating and had to choose between going back to finish it or letting someone she loved die in peace. Uh, was that dying in peace? Yeah, lady, that's not what that means. I think dying in peace would have been if she had gone back to put her off her misery instead of letting her, like, choke. Slowly die yeah. horribly. Yeah, yeah, it's put rough. Blood. Yeah, it's rough. Jennifer explains to Derek that she had been left to die near the Nematon, which just a few months earlier had its spark reunited by the sacrifice of a virgin. So does the first sacrifice always have to be a virgin? Good question, isn't it? Also, how did she know the page thing had to do with Derek? Did she read the script? I feel like she would have had absolutely no way of knowing. Well, it's a good thing she did read the script because someone needed to tell Derek that all of this is his fault, like everything. Is that the way you would use sacrifice? Was Paige oh. a sacrifice? I think, or did she just die while virgin? I she think died while virginal and also being killed by someone else on a nematon. I think sacrifice maybe isn't the correct word for this particular situation, but I think it, it must be that if someone dies on the nematon or something like that, that that- Or is killed. Or is I killed. I feel like that is part of it. Yes, that if someone's like killed there, that the, the tree takes something. Like it, it's, it's it, you know, and it's kind of like, it just feeds off what's around it. And like, so it wasn't like an intentional thing, but the nematon was like, those are some tasty virginal noms. I'll go with it. <laughs> you know, I didn't know this was coming today. But I feel like this blood's been to second base, but nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it after the last episode where she just got into explaining the term sacrifice mm. because that's not what I feel like happened with Paige. Yeah. It seems it, like it's about intention there and there wasn't intention. Derek didn't take her there to kill her. Right. But then it's also like, apparently that turned his eyes blue and your eyes are blue when you take an innocent life. But to me, when I hear the phrase take an innocent life, not associated with Paige, but just by itself, I wouldn't think like putting someone out of their misery counts for that. It, you know, like if, yeah. if, if you knew someone who was like terminally ill and was like, will you please help me die with dignity? 
that would turn your eyes blue like that's kind of bullshit cosmos they go to go to jail in certain states so i guess that's how that works well i guess i thought that the all-knowing universe had better moral gauge than the fucking state of indiana <laughs> i still like the idea of what we've talked about before that it's about your own feelings on it Derek mm-hmm. felt guilty he felt like her life was lost because of him. Mm-hmm. Victoria's eyes did change because she felt she'd never take an innocent life. And Peter, if we're going to pretend it wasn't his story and he didn't kill Paige, I feel like he would have recognized Laura was innocent. It was just something necessary he had to do. The Nematon's reignited power allowed Jennifer to hold on to life long enough to be rescued by none other than Deputy Stalinsky. The only cop in Beacon Hills. Mm-hmm. The only live one. Also at the hospital, Melissa tells Scott that Deucalion had let her go as a gesture of goodwill. Scott says there must be another reason. I do think it was a gesture of goodwill. It just wasn't out of the goodness of his heart. It was to get Scott to join him. Yeah. Right. I imagine he like sent her off with also like one of those like third grader notes that says, will you join my pack now? Check yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to let you go, but here's what you have to do. You have to go to Scott and you have to be like, that Deucalion guy isn't so bad after all. He was really nice and he gave me a lollipop. In the script, the scene opens the act, but in editing, it was placed near the end, I assume for pacing. Scott and Melissa run into Chris, Allison, and Isaac. In the elevator, Jennifer asks Derek if he knows why people kiss under mistletoe. Because people are horny and just want an excuse to kiss. That checks out. Jennifer tells Derek the Nordic myth of Baldur, a favorite of the gods whose mother Frigg took oaths from all things on earth that they wouldn't hurt him. Stones hurled at him, flames, nothing could touch him. Then they tried cutting remarks. Give me a chance to practice my massive aggression. <laughs> Everyone watch our flag it means death. I demand this. That's the second our flag quote that I've worked into this episode. But Frigg had forgotten to ask Mistletoe. It seemed harmless and was overlooked. Loki created a dart out of Mistletoe and killed Baldur. Heartbroken, Frigg decreed that Mistletoe would never again be used as a weapon, and she would place a kiss on anyone who passed under it. We hang it during holidays so it'll never be overlooked. And to remember that Loki's an asshole. Jennifer says that the emissaries were overlooked too. And she made an oath to use the power of virgins, warriors, healers, philosophers, and guardians to punish the Alpha Pack for their monstrous actions. But they didn't really overlook the emissaries. They were supposed to kill the emissaries too. That implies they did think of them as potential threats. Yeah, Kali didn't follow through, but still, it might have made more sense if she had been privy to that conversation where Kali had told Deucalion that Julia was harmless. But of course, we have no reason to think that she was. I like the story of the mistletoe and the idea of like being overlooked, but that's definitely not what I feel like happened with the emissaries. Yeah, it's a great story. The only problem is it does not in any way line up with what happened to Jennifer and the other emissaries. I know that Derek is going through a lot, but it would have been so funny if he was like, that analogy makes no sense. Are you sure you're an English teacher? She's like, no, have you not been listening? I was an emissary. (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of like fun stories to tell to give people lessons. That's what emissaries do. I'm a witch on the dark side cosplaying as an English teacher. Yes. 
Derek counters that she killed innocent people. Jennifer retorts that he did too. She knows what his blue wolf eyes mean. Oh, fuck you. No, those are two completely different things. Jennifer says she's not just asking Derek to help save her life, but the lives of everyone the Alpha Pack will hurt in the future if no one stops them. Derek doesn't believe Jennifer can stop them, but Jennifer reminds him that werewolves lose all their power during a total lunar eclipse. In the script, Jennifer actually says that the lunar eclipse will last 90 minutes, but it was cut from the episode. I'm guessing that's because they didn't want to box themselves in by establishing exactly how long that's going to last. We know how averse Teen Wolf is to being clear about the passage of time. Yes. Meanwhile, Melissa Scott, Isaac, Allison, and Chris try to figure out what to do. If they turn the power back on, the Alpha Pack will be on top of Derek and Jennifer as soon as the elevator starts moving again and stops on a floor. Allison comes up with a plan. She gets on a video call with Isaac, who goes out to the car. Allison tells her dad that Isaac looks terrified. Unfortunately for her, Isaac can still hear her. That's adorable. I think it's funny that Isaac's comment about Jennifer being hot is what comes right before Allison coming up with the plan. I know that she sees herself in the mirror and it's supposed to be that she just happened to look at the mirror after he said that and that's what made her think of it. But I like to think that basically her thought process is, who else does Isaac think is hot? Me. Wait, I could impersonate Jennifer. (laughs) Right. Who else does Isaac think is hot? Scott, get a wig. The twins follow a woman running through the halls of the hospital. I like the score Dino's doing. It's a variation on the opening credits theme. When the woman leaves the hospital, the twins follow her, while Kali leaps out of a window to join them. She landed in a total Black Widow move. Yeah, she's seen some superhero movies. The woman turns out to be Allison, prepared with arrows and joined by Chris with two guns. This is a little bit of a cheat in my opinion. The woman running has Jennifer's exact hairstyle, but they're saying it was actually Allison. Yeah, and I think she also had the exact earrings that Jennifer was wearing. Little suspicious. Also, Chris, I love you, man. I really do. But you cannot hit the broad side of a barn. One gun, buddy. Use those sights. They're there for a reason. (laughs) Did they go to the elevator to get Jennifer's shoes? I think they do, because I think when that plan happens and you see Derek open up the elevator, behind him, I think Jennifer is actually sitting down and fiddling with her shoes. Oh, Up on the roof, Melissa turns the power back on. Derek prepares to get out of the elevator. Jennifer tells him to look at her as her face changes to the slashed up Duroc face. Well, don't scream at him. That just makes it worse. My face is hideous. Don't look at it. (laughs) If you're trying to sneak up on him, don't make that sound. Don't Nosferatu this. (laughs) Isaac pulls the car around to get Cora from the ambulance with Stiles' help. As he's closing the doors, Stiles notices a form that has a line on the bottom saying parent or guardian. Something clicks in his head. Instead of joining Isaac in the car, he runs back into the hospital. Scott finds Derek unconscious in the elevator with Jennifer nowhere to be found. She was so ugly it knocked him right out. (laughs) Scott has the same thought Stiles had, his mother. He runs to the roof while Isaac, pursued by the Alpha Pack, has to leave without him. Ah, That's a great effect shot on the roof. Melissa isn't there, but Deucalion is. Guardian means parent, Deucalion says, da-da. And if Scott had been in his pack, Deucalion could have warned him that Melissa would be a target. Shut the fuck up, Deucalion. Seriously, I mean, common sense could have told him Melissa was going to be a target. Melissa's always <laughs> a target. Yes. He said she's been taken by every villain. Deucalion had her five minutes ago. Like, <laughs> obviously. I could have told you she's going to be a target and that I was going to kidnap her as well. <laughs> Deucalion tells Scott that he must help Deucalion catch Jennifer. 
Then Deucalion will help Scott get Melissa and the sheriff back. Aw, sad boy face. He is kicked puppy through and through. Kicked puppy. Styles catches up to Scott and tries to convince him there's another way and he shouldn't go with Deucalion. Scott can't think of any other way, so he goes with Deucalion, promising Styles that he'll find his dad. And Styles is like, well, I'll go find Derek now, I guess. Where are they going? Are they just going to like jump off the rooftop together? <laughs> what you don't see is Styles standing there sadly, and then you hear this voice. Are Are you still there? Can we Can we come back out of the fog? It was dramatic, but the exit is actually behind you. <laughs> Scott tries to hope, hold open the door for Styles, and Styles is like, "Nah, man." Awkward you know elevator ride like down. It makes so much more <laughs> sense knowing that that wasn't a real rooftop set because then it's like, like when filming. Nobody thought of the fact that there's not another way down from the roof in that direction because it's like you're actually in a parking lot, so you can go somewhere. And nobody yes. made the connection. Melissa wakes up in a root cellar tied up. Stalinsky, also tied up, tells her that Jennifer called it something else. She called it a nematon. The episode ends there. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for The Overlooked. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Thank you, Miss McCall. You're him, aren't you? Him? The bad guy. You have no idea. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Gary Stearns, stunt coordinator for Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. First of all, since you've worked in both narrative universes, I have to ask the great question of our times, Marvel or DC? That's a hard one. I have to be politically correct. Uh, um, I think... uh, I'm a character guy, so I like characters from both universes. I mean, obviously, I think Marvel's been added a little longer, but uh, DC's got some great stuff as well, and uh, it's hard to hard to pick one or the other. Very uh, even diplomatic. Even, yes, very yeah. diplomatic. <laughs> Nature of our of our business. Absolutely. So, uh, Gary, how did you get into the world of stunts? Uh, no pun intended, but I fell into it. I um, <laughs> I uh, was on. I did martial arts since I was like ten years old. Uh, competed all you know a lot of different competitions. Then when I was in college, I got on a team that would travel us around. There's there were like 12, 13 national competitions around the country. So you know, one, two a month, something like that. Um, so what happens I went to one in Florida, and they were doing a uh, TV series there. So they came and watched the nighttime finals and. Uh, they liked my skill set, and uh, I was a good double for a guy they didn't have a double for. And a week later, they called me, and bam, 25 years gone, like 98, 97, something like that. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Did you ever envision something like that, or was this kind of like a out-of-left-field thing? No, I've always been like daredevil-type guys, always jumping off close in the water and just doing, you know, silly things. But uh, I did have a couple of friends that were working in the business and I just thought that'd be cool, but I never really had started pursuing it or anything like that. And uh, like I said, this kind of fell into it. Very nice. That's awesome. So what does the job of a stunt coordinator entail? 
Uh, number one thing is it's safety, uh, making sure all the actors and stunt performers and everyone's safe. Uh, we design the action, collaborate with the showrunner, director, try to find a happy spot that we're all happy with. Uh, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll bring the stunt guys in after I've talked to the showrunner and director and went over the script and I'll do what we call a pre-biz. And what that is, is pretty much I'll choreograph, shoot the action, you know, then present it. They'll look at it. Sometimes they say, that's great. We'll roll with it. Other times they'll make adjustments. I'll go back, reshoot it if I have time and uh, just stuff like that. Very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. I've, I've heard Danny Boyle described stunt guys, uh, uh, and I think he was talking about a stunt coordinator, but as editors and how he was talking about, they were doing a, a sequence for um, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. And this was like his first time kind of doing like stunty stuff. And, and the coordinator was just like, okay, we're going to get just this moment of this little bit of a fall. And Danny Boyle was like, what about the rest of it? He's like, oh, don't worry about that. That's just this shot. And, all, and so it was just so interesting that he was like, you know, that that they knew what it was going to look like better than he did because he had never done anything like that before. So they were kind of saying, here are the shots. Here's kind of where you need to put the camera to hide things and, and all that, just because he was like, I just do movies in Scotland where people run around and take drugs. I don't know what's happening here. So. <laughs> before so, yeah. or after. Right? Yeah. No, that's true. It's like, you know, we'll design it. Um, we'll find spots for the actors, you know, obviously it's there's no need for them to do it all i'll design something a cool action sequence and i'm like okay where can i get the coverage of the actors things like that but a lot of times you have a lot of actors that are gung-ho that you know do a little more than others but uh my job as the coordinator is to hold them back as much as possible and uh and just keep them safe awesome that's wonderful safety first going to yeah i was actually going to ask uh how do you determine whether an actor can do this stuff themselves versus a stunt performer well, I mean, obviously, I'm not, never going to let them do anything, you know, that's going to put them in harm's way. But uh, a lot of it's based on their skill set. A lot of times I'll work that into the choreography and find little spots that they can do a lot of their own things because it always looks good when I don't have to cut away to, you know, the back of the head or profile or hide their face or something like that. And you know, the actor was the one that did it. That's awesome. So what's the hardest stunt you've ever undertaken? I saw that. That's that's hard. I've done it so long. Uh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, I think the best thing is just like the preparation, the calculated risk. Everybody's like, oh, stunt people are crazy. They do all these daredevil things, but not really. Everything's super calculated. The bigger stunts are probably safer than the smaller ones because we take so much time, you know, and prep and designing them to, you know, make it as safe as possible. So it's really hard to pick one certain one, but uh the preparation is what I enjoy the most. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Alyssa and I are huge fans of Buffy, Angel, and Dollhouse, and you worked on all three. What was your experience like on Weedinverse shows? They were great. I mean, that's those shows were like the big item when I first got into business. That's what everybody was working on. So it was fun. I didn't realize all the... Uh, getting in at 3 a.m. and having glue all over your face and putting prosthetics <laughs> and, you know, and, and having them run around with, a, I had this one character who was like a demon, had these big bull horns on a fiberglass helmet and a big cow, you know, four hours. And next thing you know, your neck is killing you just leaning over. But uh, it was, uh, I got used to it and it was, it was fun to see, you know, all the special effects makeup and things, how great they were, those guys were at that. 
Uh, but it was it was definitely uh, like I said, it's three in the morning smelling glue for four or five hours is definitely uh, a good way to wake up. <laughs> I bet it sounds awesome, but also terrible at the same time. Just yeah, and you can't wait to get out of it because you know that stuff is glued on. I mean, when you, you anything you move, you wink, you swing, you know, it's all glued on. You can't get it off yourself. You know, they have solutions <sighs> that they just take you a little off at a time. It takes about half the time to take it off. But uh, I've I own pirates. I set for eight hours on on one uh character that was doing which, but, uh, which character was that i love those movies so uh i did the the one with all the zombies it was uh i actually doubled the quartermaster okay the with all yeah the mm-hmm. and stuff. yeah so i mean it was like they were trying to find the right look with all the different tattoos and things like that and then a lot of the same guys from the buffies and the angels were all there so it's like a kind of like a family reunion that's awesome uh, that was <laughs> so cool yeah so uh, uh, do you have a favorite stunt you've been a part of? No, nah, like I said, I, it, they're all, there's so many of them, it's hard to pick a certain one, you know. Gotcha. All right. The, the career. My favorite stunt is my career. So <laughs> it is, It's all of them. You know, it's like I said, there's so many. When, when you've done it for since, you know, 97, 98, they, they start to blend together. I understand. I understand. So how did you end up in Beacon Hills then? It's funny, I was working on Jack Reacher in um, Pittsburgh, and uh, I think a friend of mine had referred me to uh, Jeff and, and company, and uh, so they called me that afternoon. I uh, did like a Zoom interview with them. Um, what I think helped me a lot is they had a character, which I don't know if you're there yet, Will or not, but called the Cantima, the lizard. The Cantima, yeah. Yeah, you know, we just had done Spider-Man, which the lizard and I was telling them how I researched you know how he would move and things like that they didn't tell me they had that character but I think that they're like oh you know so they were I think that definitely uh helped my chances of getting on that's awesome um, yeah that's really really cool to uh, not know that. Good, t- good timing <laughs> yeah, yeah excellent timing <laughs> do you have a favorite episode of Teen Wolf I, I think uh will probably know the one I'm going to pick as well because it's on his laptop or it was is the one where Kira <laughs> mom and uh, yep. that was that was one of my favorites and uh I think I grew up and I even got started in the business in the Hong Kong phase with you know, work with the Wu Ping and Corey Yoon and Jet Li and Jackie and all those guys so awesome. I grew up in that genre so that's like my thing so when after talking to Jeff and Russell and I'm like, can I like go full Hong Kong on this? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, it was, it was just a lot of fun, you know? And you can see it's kind of got the Hong Kong flavor and things like that. But uh, it was one of my favorite favorite fights of the, the Who uh, show, I think. It's my absolute favorite fight. And the shot that you're referencing is on my desktop right now. Uh, oh, it's my favorite I, shot. I, I just <laughs> love that shot. It just, it screams like you and Wu Ping and, and like, you know, old 70s, 80s Jackie Chan films and stuff like that, where it's very peaking opera and big and grandiose and it's oh i love it so much best shot in the no, whole that, series no i loved it it was it was one of like i said one of the favorite things i've did on the whole show oh, so cool i did like the it's divine gorgeous. move too the divine move mm-hmm. that was that one, one is great I, I love well like i you know grew up in the ninja phase too so you know showing my age but uh been able to do all the Oni stuff and that whole scene where you know we come into the hospital when you know Boyd Styles and the slow-mo with the great music yeah. soundtrack mm-hmm. and that was that was pretty pretty awesome shot oh yeah absolutely so good so good 
what was the process of doing stunts for a Teen Wolf episode like? Would you start working on it as soon as the script was ready? Yes, I would. I would uh, get the script, I'd read it, break it down, figure out what kind of stunts I thought we would need. Then I would collaborate with Jeff and uh, or whoever's directing it, whether it be Russell or or Tim or you know Jan or whoever's there. And uh, after talking with them, then I'd take uh, the notes they gave me and I'd go shoot the previses and things like that, and then let them look at it and critique it and figure out if they want any changes and things like that. That's awesome. You're also credited as a second unit director for three episodes of Teen Wolf. Can you tell us about that experience? What's What's so good about being behind the camera is, you know, you, you get be more part of the creative side of it. So it's really fun to, you know, like all the different camera angles and things like that. A lot of times, you know, when you're on the main unit, you know, doing great stuff, but, you know, they may want a different angle or something like that. But when you're second unit it, then you can like throw, you know, special things that you like or preferences. And it's just, just uh, the creative part is what makes it really special and see that, you know, see it all come together. Yeah, great. can't imagine how just amazing that would be. <laughs> it was fun, yeah. Do you have any fun stories from the Teen Wolf set that you'd like to share? Well, was going back to what you're saying, this could be coincidence, but uh, I got my DGA on Teen Wolf. So what was funny is I brought it up to Jeff and everyone early on that, you know, if you ever get the opportunity, I'd love to do that. So coming, I forgot what episode it was, but all of a sudden uh, Jeff and Joe and they all, and Russell, they call, hey, we're going to go scout this location on Saturday. Would, you know, would you care to just come out with us? And I wasn't doing anything. I'm like, sure. So it's over near Malibu, uh, one of the high schools we filmed that over there. So we're over there and I'm just doing my normal thing. You know, I always just stand by if you they have any questions, you know, they throw at me. And then all of a sudden they're like, they're having this conversation. Well, Russell, you're going to be here directing this. And so-and-so is going to be directing this. Who's going to direct this? And then all of a sudden, they all three look back at me and go, you are. And I'm like, yeah. So, I don't know if it's set up, but it felt like they were, they were you know, they, they had it set up for me. So, which is, Aww. and I also have another good story. One of my mentors was uh, Andy Armstrong. He got his DGA on Highlander with Russell. And oh. Russell helped me get my DGA 30 some years later. So uh, I thought that was a good little, oh. little you know, around the world trip. Yeah, yeah that's great. Small world. Really, yeah. Really yeah, yeah, for sure. Russell is the Oprah of DGAs. He's just like, you get a DGA, <laughs> you get a DGA. Exactly. You get yeah. one too? <laughs> <laughs> Will's like, yeah, I got mine too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't have the the mental bandwidth for that one of our other writers uh eric wallace had wanted to direct for a long time and and had been putting the bug in jeff's ear and jeff gave him the opportunity to do it but it was it was taxing you know i mean it, on anyone it, it's taxing it's just there's so much going on and it's, it's just like pressure. yeah there's so much pressure and there's so much going on and you have so little time and so little money and all that and then i'm like i just i'm i'm comfortable with the stress of the writer's room if you ask me to really do more than that i might break because I'm very <laughs> fragile, but um, yeah, so that's, that's so cool. That's so cool. You got the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Very pressure, but also very rewarding, you know, yeah. so it's pretty fun. Fantastic. Who's your favorite Teen Wolf character? I saw that one. I'm like, kind of like asking me, who's your favorite child? You can't just pick one. You know, I mean, there is like, an answer, but I, I will honestly, you know, honestly, I love them all. The thing Jeff, did amazingly on this show was he put together a very tight-knit family-oriented group of guys and gals and it was just I mean 
is like going, you know, the family reunion every time he went to, uh, went to work. So, uh, that's what, that's what made the show very special for me. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Love hearing stories like that. About <laughs> it's good. How close everyone was. Yeah. So, uh, you worked on some big projects like Pirates of the Caribbean and Spider-Man that we've talked about in the Matrix films. How do projects like those compare to something as just, you know, so awesome as Teen Wolf? I think on those shows like that, they already have like a format, you know, a formula that works. I think on shows like, you know, Teen Wolf or a lot of the television shows, or I did like Daredevil and Jessica Jones, some of those shows. Uh, what's great about those is I think you have a little more creativity that they, they want to listen to. You know, so it's not so much a format you have to follow. There is, but I mean, I think you have a lot more, you know, leeway to throw out ideas and do things that you probably wouldn't get a chance to on the bigger shows. That's very cool. It's so interesting because you'd think on something so big where it's like, we're doing Matrix sequels. Here's $250 million. It's like, we have the sky's the limit but it's like no 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 you you've only got about 45 dollars yeah, for yeah. your thing but then on something so small you know like like teen wolf where it's like yeah. there's literally no time and no money it's like what can you do for us what can how can you make this extra special and that's just so cool so and it's it's the practical you know you, you have to make everything practical because obviously the budget you know it fits the budget better but i mean i love the practical i love the gritty you know the realistic fighting styles and things like that you know in the bigger shows and you know it's so much cg not it's a bad thing but it's, there's a lot of it that's where most of your budget goes you know so uh on the smaller things you have you know more opportunities to you know do the things you like and be really creative with it fantastic who on the teen wolf set cast or crew would make the best alpha well i mean there's only one person i mean that's jeff i mean he He's so good at writing and coming up with these villains. And I'm sure he researches all the urban legends. I mean, he has, you know what those characters, going, how they're going to move, how they're going to act, what their styles are after you talk to him. So he's so detailed and knows exactly what he wants. He definitely would be the alpha dog. Absolutely. He is the alpha of alphas and the showrunner of yeah. showrunners. So. <laughs> but that's good because I don't know one, you know what, what, so me trying to figure it out, it's great to know exactly what he wants and then try to, you know, figure out a way to give it to him. Right. Yeah, the, this wasn't one that we included on the list, but what you were saying about, uh, you know, how a villain's going to move, that's kind of an interesting way to put that. Do you, like, how do you go about when you read a script and there's a new character that you know is going to be in a fight scene or in a, in a stunt-heavy scene? Like, how do you go about figuring out how their fighting style or their look on screen is going to be different from other villains. Cause Teen Wolf has a lot of villains. We do every season. I was so excited to see what he came up with the next season. So yeah, yeah it was fun. Um, after talking to Jeff, I'd get some uh, ideas where he, you know, was going with it. Then I would research, come up with different ideas. I would read urban legends, you know, from Francis, the Cantamon. It goes back to like on Spider-Man where, you know, I was watching, you know, like, uh, alligator wrestling and stuff like that just to see how you know the animals moved and things like that that way if we can incorporate that into the fight or whatever we're doing it looks so much more realistic my big pitch every time I, I do a show is like I would love if I put five different villains together and I put 
mask over them, the same clothing. You can tell who's who. But as soon as I looked at that guy move, I knew exactly which character it was. I mean, whether it's Marvel, superheroes or whatever, each one should have a distinctive fighting style that separates them from the rest. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to do that because you get, you know, so caught up in it. But, uh, and they're, you know, but for me, it's fighting style has to match whatever the character or villain is. But I just researched it to death and uh, collaborate with Jeff or Russell, whoever's directing or Tim, and uh, we come up with a, a good compromise. That's really cool. That's and, really cool. And thinking about it like that, because like you, you mentioned Jessica Jones, and I love that. And I like how, I like her slender life appearance, but she's just like this bruiser fighter. So she just punches. That's all she does. She just punches and pushes through walls and punches stuff like and that. Punches. And it's just so interesting that, that that that's the approach. It's like, what's this character's fighting style? Like what, you know, like how are they as a character? And how does that translate to punching faces? Yeah, for instance, you know, she really doesn't have a style. Like you're saying, she's just powerful. Yeah. She's either throwing people or, you know, when she does hit them, throw them in the walls or, you know, throw them up in the ceilings, things like that. It's using what her superpower, would, you know, is. Yeah. Very cool. Jessica Jones is a blunt instrument. Yes. No, she's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. You know, in Daredevil's same way, you know, we tried to make his fighting style very distinctive. You know, the first two seasons, he was more like the comic book you see, but by the third season, he had got injured so he was kind of having to reinvent himself which was great for me because I did that started on season three so we had to uh just make it real gritty and dirty which is great because you know you only go so far before it starts getting to be a little too much but uh mm -hmm. that's why I love the best about the third season is just making it dirty and gritty that's so cool what was your favorite part of working on Teen Wolf I, I would say the family the whole family yeah. atmosphere yeah it, it was just such a tight-knit group everybody was friends you know it's it was a uh, bittersweet when we all left you know but uh it Aww. was uh that was my favorite thing on it it's just the family atmosphere it's really sweet good family it is yeah feels like i'm part of it <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was great i mean you know, i went to work every day happy and you know it's like every you know everybody goes in and you got jobs to do and things like that but uh but when you got you can go work with people you like and enjoy being around it definitely makes it less like work definitely absolutely if you could be any teen wolf creature what would you be Ooh, there's so many good ones i mean i'm just trying to think of all the cool costumes i mean the cantama in season two was pretty awesome you know just that full body costume that my stunt guy wore it was it was hectic on him, but it was really cool to look at. We even bought him a a, a, a race car uh, cool suit. Pretty much it's got, it's a vest that has all these little pipes through it and you plug it into ice cold cooler and it pumps cold water into it. So we had to keep doing that because he was just overheating left and right. But uh, that was cool and I didn't have to be in it. So it made it a lot easier. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, of, course, of course the Ninja Onis were great. Cause I, you know, being from the you know martial arts phase, you know all the sword fights and things like that was was pretty cool. But the Berserker and all those were great characters as well. I mean, every season I'm just trying to think. I can't think of one I didn't like. Uh, the Dread Doctors were great, and, you know all their different styles. Um, but I'd say the Cantama and the the Ninja Onis are probably my two favorite. Nice, good choices. Very good choices. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, Gary, do you have any upcoming projects you can tell us about? 
it's been in Columbia for eight months. I can't talk too much about it, but it's a military type flick that'll be out uh, towards the end of the year. So we got about three more weeks left on it. But uh, nice. I got to spend my eight months in Columbia. That was pretty fun. Nice. Uh, never That's been there really before. cool. Yeah, it was great. Got to visit a lot of cool places and uh, definitely would go back. I have a new uh, perspective on it now. Very nice. Are there any hints that you can give us? Like, is it starring, I don't know, someone named after Stone? or a famous Alcatraz prison, or? I'll say no to those. Okay. All right. <laughs> Never to those. Okay. I'm All in right. trouble. All right, I got you. Play coy, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Gary, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your schedule to talk to us and 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 go back down uh, this wonderful memory lane to Beacon Hills on for, for a show that we all love very much. Hey, the pleasure's all mine, and uh, hopefully one day we'll do it again. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so very much. That would that would just be awesome. All right, Wolfies. We had a great time talking with Gary, but now it's back to spoilers. Guys, it really sucks that Lydia isn't in this episode. I really felt her absence. Yeah, and that we have to wait until the next episode to get any further with the Banshee stuff that they revealed in the previous episode. Yeah. I like that they come back to the Banshee stuff, but as we talked about in the previous episode, it was weird to have several major reveals all in one episode. You have Jennifer's the Jurok, Lydia is a Banshee, and Stalinsky finds out about the supernatural all in the span of like six minutes or something. Yeah, it's like, like it's one really act. back to back. It's all really packed together. And as a result, we have this whole episode where none of that really, well, the reveal of the Duroc obviously is still relevant to this episode, but yeah. the fact of Selinsky finding out about the supernatural does not affect this episode in any way. It doesn't come back until the following episode. And the same with Lydia being a banshee, as is yeah. evidenced by her being absent from the entirety of the episode and just being mentioned in a couple of scenes. One where Allison is talking to Isaac in the school hallway and explaining about how Lydia was taken to a different hospital because Beacon Memorial was evacuating. And then there's also the scene where they confront Jennifer about Lydia being attacked and she denies it. But that's all that Lydia does yeah not even does those are the only situations where she comes up in this episode so it's like her whole plot line is just on pause for this episode not fun i just want to bring back up that i think it's hilarious that they seemed to consider pairing cora with styles for a hot second given the fact that she's basically girl derek they're even in strikingly similar situations like this episode has styles frantically trying to revive cora when he thinks she's dead just as he did with derek and magic bullet and in both cases it's after one of the show's villainous women poison them with werewolf poison that makes them cough up black blood yeah, it's like, y'all are so close to getting it. So close. But not <laughs> quite there. Not quite there. Someday. Someday you guys are going to be like, wait. <laughs> when did you guys realize she might not be returning? Because you had to comatose her so that she could go film Rain Pilot, in which oh, she was the lead. Yeah. Did you guys uh, still thinking about going to try to make it happen whenever? Well, I mean, she like... Yeah, like she was just going to shoot the pilot from what I remember. So, I mean, the pilot might not have gone, you know, like, the, you know, the CW, yeah, CW, right? I mean, they could have, it could have been like many hundreds of other pilots that get shot every year and don't go to series. So it's like, I think it, it must have been between seasons when CW was like, we've got gold. And then it was like, all right, well, <laughs> she's not coming back. 
So, because yeah. I feel like the creepy line that Styles says in this one that I really hate the it, the only reason for its presence is them planning to have a kiss between Styles and Cora eventually, right? Like, yeah, I mean that's exactly what's you know. Be. So yeah. I, I feel like yeah, that did have to be still in the running at this point which is interesting because then in the following episode we have also not a kiss <laughs> yeah but it kind of blurs the lines a little bit with like with Lydia and Styles so it's interesting because Teen Wolf doesn't really do love triangles and I, I don't even know that this doesn't even really count as a love triangle but it does feel like some kind of oscillation or like uncertainty about where Styles's storyline is going in terms of his love interest. Yeah. I think that Jeff always probably planned it out to be like a longer term thing with Lydia and Styles, mm. but uh, wanted like him to have a love interest before then. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I would have really hated it because, you know, it's Derek through and through and they just made a female Derek. But I would have been really interested where Cora's storyline would have gone if mm-hmm. she had remained on the show. Do you have any mm-hmm. knowledge of that, Will? No. I mean, this was still like early days for me in the writer's room, but I don't ever remember us talking about Cora past this season. Cause I think by the time all of this stuff is happening, all that matters are these episodes where it's just like you're under the gun by this point in the season. But now that you've said that, I kind of feel like maybe a lot of Malia's stuff is what Cora would have had. I mean, probably you know, they just replaced her with a different They hail. just replaced her with a different hail. Yeah. So, but I don't remember there being plans for her beyond this. And that honestly, and honestly, that could have been because um, she went off to shoot the pilot and, and it was like, well, let's not, let's hold off. Let's not, you know, plant Put too, many too eggs much. In that basket. What's that? Put too many eggs in that basket. Yes. So she, she left Beacon Hills with Derek and you see him close the door and he went, I don't know, somewhere and she went off to Scotland to be queen i think it would have been really interesting to try to get her back for the movie yeah yeah she's definitely like any they want to actually pursue that but i think it would have been very interesting especially now that we have the knowledge of derek having a son Mm -hmm. but like you know to see aunt cora come back into the picture yeah she wasn't part of the breaking when i was there like we i don't think she even came up so i even know what adelaide kane's up to these days so i'm being hot on instagram with her hot girlfriend which I guess is enough. Yeah. But, you know, so that's nice. But no, she, Cora would be fun to see. She would have been fun to have come back in the movie. That would have been a lot of fun because she's, I don't want to say she's been forgotten, but it, I think she would have a, a big entrance, you know, like, and you'd be like, ah, Cora, you know, because like, everyone you know, throws up their hands as she walks Everyone throws the up their hands. <laughs> Cora. You know, she just um, turns around, walks back out. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. <laughs> Forgot my jacket. See ya. <laughs> it is kind of funny. I honestly didn't, or I don't remember making the connection between like the romantic tension, quote unquote, between Styles and Cora, and then Styles and Malia being a storyline, and then there being the reveal that Malia is a Hale. Mm-hmm. Like, were they just gonna cycle him through every girl Hale they could conjure just to avoid doing the thing? Yeah, that's so funny to me. It's it's like when when Marvel did the the thing where like in an alternate universe, Tony Stark is born a woman and marries Steve Rogers, and it's like, oh my god, you guys! 
Yep. It's like getting, you're making it weird. <laughs> you're like really going out of your way to make it weird at this point. I mean, we're not homophobic. We don't have any problem with having like one of our big marquee superheroes be in a queer relationship. It's just that if one of them was a girl, we'd feel way more comfortable. Do you see the distinction? If you listen to like any of the stories being told in this episode, I feel like you can figure out where Melissa and the sheriff are. Plus there are only like three relevant locations in all Beacon Hills. They should just cycle through those. Oh, they have the Hale House? No. Have you checked under the Hale House and the bank? The mall. See, the mall. The Not the mall. subway station. It has asbestos now. <laughs> yes. <Derek's locked. laughs> in fairness even if they had realized that they were at the nematon they don't actually know where that is so there's at least that extra layer of mystery on top of it yeah that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills we hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things teen wolf follow us on twitter and instagram at rtbh podcast and tumblr and tiktok at return to beacon hills if you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 11, Alpha Pact. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.